It's week four of 2018, and this week we're still talking about Spectre and Meltdown patches. We've also got some news from Linux, as well as some cloud scenarios to look at. And Don introduces a new category, game shows. So we'll see what that's all about coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host Peter Van Ryan and I am joined as always by Mr. Don Pizet. Don, how are you doing today? I am, you know, excited about today's podcast. We do have the the general assortment of news that we usually cover, and we have one just totally bizarre article. I was trying to do some build up with Peter before the show on uh, that we'll get to uh, yeah, towards the end. It's one of those almost where, hey, have you read this? No, well, don't read it yet. I can't <laughs> wait to tell you about it. But uh, it is week four of 2018. I don't have to write checks anymore, so I don't. Uh, I don't know where I'll be screwing that up, probably here, but it's 2018, uh, week four. And believe it or not, uh, we're starting off with something we've been talking about since probably week 52 or 51 of 2017, but Spectre. Uh, the the Spectre uh, vulnerability uh, was uncovered, and patches were quickly uh, released to try to address those. And now patches are being released to address the patches, and uh, basically, we're at a point where uh, Intel is saying, stop installing our patches. So, Don, <laughs> what is going on? What do we do? This is, um, this is quickly turning into a, uh, what military personnel would call a Charlie Foxtrot. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, a total just mess. I, this, this happens when you have a significant security flaw and companies rush to push out a fix, right? And especially when you have more than one company involved, right? So the, the problem for Meltdown actually stemmed from Intel processors, right? That's where the problem was. And so Intel basically came up with a fix, but they can't deploy that. Instead, they have to give it to the motherboard manufacturers and the other OEMs that are out there and get them to push it in. So there is a whole challenge there with delivering the fix. And we saw that last week and the week before, the challenges with Meltdown. But... That was just Intel. Now we get Spectre in the mix, right? And, and Spectre affects every platform, right? ARM, AMD, Intel, so not, not just limited. And with Spectre, it's up to the operating system vendors to fix it. And so now you have like Microsoft with Windows or Apple with Mac OS trying to patch it across all these different processors. And it's it's just, it's been rushed so much. They haven't tested it that it's running into problems. And we're starting to see more and more companies say, look, we can't push this fix out the way it is, right? And that's what Intel is basically saying is, look, we, we came up with this fix, but it's buggy. It's got some problems. And the, the, the number one problem that people are seeing, if, if you haven't seen this yourself, is that you apply the fix, and then sometimes your computer will boot up just fine, sometimes it will fail to boot. It'll lock up during boot up. And usually if you just turn it off, turn it back on again, it works, right? And uh, some people, uh, I know one of our viewers, James, I was talking to earlier this week, uh, he said that uh, it's really every other boot. For, for him, it is, wow. hey, I just learned I push power and it doesn't come on. I push power to turn it off and I turn it back on again and everything's fine, woo right? That's uh, the new normal. That's the <laughs> new normal. You know, what I, is he on, a, is it a PC? Uh, he's on a PC. Okay. Yeah, that was a, a Windows, actually, Wait a minute, is he running Ubuntu on that? He, it might have been a Linux box, but it doesn't really matter at that point because the, you know, it's the, the processor that's causing the problem. But uh, you know, that, that is a big challenge people are seeing. And on a, a laptop or a desktop, it's inconvenient. On a server, yeah. that's a big deal. You know, that's a challenge that it is, is 
difficult to overcome. And so Intel is basically saying, well, let's uninstall that update and we'll figure something else out. Well, here's my question about that, because this article that we're talking about, this is a PC World article, and it's it's Intel saying, stop installing our buggy Spectre CPU firmware fixes. And obviously, that's a headline, so they're kind of paraphrasing there. But um, so this is Intel's patch, or are you saying, in a situation where you've got, you know, Microsoft, you've got Apple, you've got, you know, all these different manufacturers mm -hmm. that are dealing with this, is it Intel's job to patch that? Is it Microsoft's job to patch that? Well, that's where this who's gets doing tough, it, right? Yeah. So uh, Intel basically wrote this firmware fix, right? But they can't deploy it, and instead they provided that fix, and they provided it to Microsoft, to Apple, to these various vendors, and they're now applying the fix. So when it breaks, whose fault is it? Well, you could say maybe the operating system vendor didn't apply it right, but but if they're likely, all breaking, it sounds like this it, is an issue with yeah. with the original patch. And, okay, and you know companies like Microsoft, they, they have a lot of insight into Intel, but Intel has a lot of proprietary information, information they don't share that is uh, on the inner workings of their processor. So, you know, if Intel can't fix this, then uh, you know, Linus Torvalds. I don't know if you saw his comments uh, last week where he was saying. Look, these are these are buggy, crappy updates, and yeah. and Intel is doing a terrible job. Uh, when somebody like Linus Torvalds, who is just the key player in the Linux kernel world, when he's looking at these bug fixes and saying this isn't going to work, you guys aren't trying very hard. Yeah, that usually means that it's not going to work, and Intel's not trying very hard. So I'm curious to see where it goes, but this is definitely spreading out. Um, there's another article, I want to bring this one up here from Tom's Hardware, uh, same idea, except instead of Intel saying don't install it, it's system OEMs recall meltdown and Spectre patches. So now you've got companies like Acer, ASRock, Dell, HP, all motherboard manufacturers, right? People who are, are supposed to be applying the Intel bug fixes saying, screw it, it's, it's making our systems unstable, it's affecting performance, it's, it's doing all sorts of crazy things. Don't don't deploy it, right? And and not only don't deploy it, they're saying, hey, let's let's uninstall it. If you've actually applied the the patch or fix and you can still remove it, you should, because things become in, unstable. So you're having to pick between stability or security, and that's something we as a consumer shouldn't have to do. You shouldn't have to pick between those two. That if they can't make it secure and stable it shouldn't be sold yet, right? It's not ready. Imagine a car. Like, if somebody manufactures a car that can't survive an accident uh, and also can't run without going to the mechanic for a month. That wouldn't sell. But here we have the world's most popular processor manufacturer basically giving us just that. Yeah, every other time I put the key in the car, it doesn't start. Like, that would be the same kind of thing. <laughs> but I just get out that, and get back in? That wouldn't work. <laughs> now, so let's let's play a fun game for a second, uh, which I like to call the blame game. Um, so it, it sounds like uh, on the Meltdown side, that so that's that's an, an Intel-specific thing. It's, it's easy to kind of place blame there, and, and it's easy to place blame, uh, it sounds like, on Intel as well for uh, for these patches because if, if all these people are pulling them back... Um, you know, it, it it sounds like like a problem with the patch itself, but one that I'd like to kind of remind that that we talked about a few podcasts ago when this first came out is uh, the the way that this uh, this vulnerability came to light. It was it was the correct way. It was discovered by some research teams that were able to um, to 
find these things and actually work together with another team that had found kind of the other side of Spectre Meltdown, and then they went and reported it, mm-hmm. and uh, giving the, the manufacturers an opportunity to uh, create those bugs and get them out. But somewhere along that line, it was leaked out, and and uh, and a media outlet reported it and basically said, hey, look what's happening, forcing these fixes to come out before we had the opportunity to have all this happen on the back end without any of us seeing it, which would have been great to uh, to let Intel put out this patch, say, hey, guys, does this work? No, let's fix it. All right, now let's release it to everyone. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I know when you got a story, you want to run with it. Uh, I, I come from a telecom news kind of background, but there's also kind of a responsible reporting thing here in, in my mind. And in the beginning, when this whole story broke, I, I commented on how it was, it was really irresponsible of the register to do that, right? That, that was the media outlet that, that originally rushed with this article. Um, but it was a week early, right? So it was one week before the actual disclosure date that they released it. And so now the, the updates had to be rushed. Well, the updates had to be rushed by one week. So I, I don't know if, like, this has been botched so bad at this point that yeah. if you had given Intel an extra week, would that have made a difference, right? I, I think back to, like, some of the papers that I wrote in college that if I had spent, if I had an extra hour, it wouldn't have been any better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I kind of feel like that's where we're at here is that they they came up with a, a potential easy fix, right? They're, what they're trying to do is create a fix that doesn't require a recall. Because if they have to do a recall, these processors are everywhere. It would yeah. be a significant uh, you know, hit on the company. That I just try to think how many are in this room, you know, between yeah. the computers over there, over here, our phones, the cameras. I don't know. Are those Intel chips? Absolutely All true. the fake servers in the rack behind Don. Yep. Now, now Spectre affects everything. Spectre should be able to be fixed in software. Meltdown, though, I mean, that that's a hardware problem. Yeah. And that one's just affecting Intel. And, and if Intel had to do a recall, that would be a big deal. So they're trying these software fixes, and they're just they're not stable. So I'm I'm curious to see if eventually, you know, like the, the government or somebody could step in and, and mandate, you, you've got to do a recall on this. But the other thing we have to remember is how how damaging this exploit is, or really how, how not damaging it is, that uh, there aren't known exploits for this that are, that are roaming in the wild, that if somebody were able to compromise my system to the level they could take advantage of Meltdown Inspector, they've already compromised the system, so it doesn't matter. So the only real high risk we have are for cloud vendors, that for you know the Amazons and Google Compute Engine and Microsoft Azure, those data centers where they've got multi-tenant installations, that's where the big liability, the big risk is. So the average consumer isn't necessarily affected all that much by all this. And to that end, uh, you were telling me about some uh, vendors that are basically saying, we're not going to do patches. Uh, it was, was it Red Hat? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, that was one of the first ones where I heard, and this was prior to Intel making their announcement, like, hey, roll that back. When Intel said, roll, or, you know, stop, deploying our, our update, they didn't say, we're not going to deploy another update. They just said, stop deploying this one. We're, we're going to fix it. We'll send you a new one. And Microsoft and Apple, they all kind of said, all right, we're going to stop rolling this out, and, and we'll wait till there's a new one. But Red Hat, they came out, and let me, do I have that? Uh, that's not it. Uh, well, actually, I guess I don't have it. But uh, um, Red Hat made an announcement saying, look, uh, variant two of the patch is is just not stable. It's causing systems not to boot. It's causing problems. We're going to roll back, and we're not applying an update for that. We're not going to apply a patch for it. And that, you might say, well, great. Now I can't trust Red Hat. I'm not going to run that one. But 
that's not really what's at the core. What's at the core is that it it shouldn't be up to Red Hat to make sure that the Intel processor works the way that it should. It should be up to Intel. And that's basically the stance that Red Hat is taking. Like, we're focused on the stability of our software. Intel needs to be focused on the stability of their processor. So we'll, we'll see where that all pans out over the next few weeks. It's, it's just ongoing drama. And so, uh, you know, with Red Hat just continuing on with life as usual, they have released Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7.5 uh, public beta now. So uh, is that something that you, you run Ubuntu on one and Red Hat on another? Is that... I, I run Red Hat and Fedora. Fedora. Yep. Okay. So yep. uh, is this something you're going to try out? or? Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, Red Hat, they have a real slow release cycle that uh, operating systems like Fedora and Ubuntu, they're on these six-month rolling release cycles. Uh, but with Red Hat, they're focused on stability, right? So it's not uncommon for them to only release a, a minor version update once a year. Now, there's tons of security updates and bug fixes and patches and things of that nature. But as far as a major revision, those don't happen all that often. Uh, in fact, Red Hat 7 came out years and years ago. And so people have been asking, hey, when is Red Hat 8 coming out? Well, not in 2018, yeah. you know, I mean, maybe in 2019, but it looks like in 2018, we are going to be getting Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7.5, which means if you're a CentOS user, we'll be getting CentOS 7.5. Usually CentOS trails Red Hat Enterprise Linux by a few months, but if this releases in 2018, then we'll get CentOS in 2018 as well. Uh, but that 7.5 beta is now out in the, the public beta. So if anybody wants to give it a shot and kind of see what's coming up, uh, that one is released. They did a blog post on the uh, the Red Hat blog over at redhat.com slash blog. And they highlight some of the, the features that are in it, some of the things to, to look forward to. Uh, there's more Red Hat Ansible automation. Red Hat is, is uh, obviously... Uh, likes Ansible a lot uh, since they did the acquisition. Uh, <laughs> and so you'll see things like that in here, uh, as well as some time protocol changes that are being rolled out on the security side. On the performance side, there's virtual data optimizer or VDO that's being baked in uh, and some other management platform stuff that's being built in to improve that uh, and make it available. But it's that next progression. I'm still keeping an eye on it because I want to see I'm kind of curious which version of GNOME it's going to end up with because the, the version of GNOME that was in Red Hat 7.4 uh, was getting a little bit dated, so 7.5 has a chance to fix that. Uh, and normally, closer to release, we'll see where they finally settle in on here's the version of PHP that we're going to use, here's the version of glibc, and all those other things that you can't normally update without breaking support in Red Hat. So we'll start to find uh, some of that, which is, is really nice. Uh, to see a new version of that coming down the line. Yeah, so I, I've kind of been familiar with the the uh, beta cycles in, in uh, Windows, but um, how long does does Red Hat normally take between when they push a beta like this and, and when they actually come out live? Uh, you know, it it varies. Normally, I would say about six months. Okay. Uh, but it hasn't been like that recently. Uh, Fedora specifically, you know, for those of you that don't know, Fedora is kind of like Red Hat's test world, right? So they test new features in Fedora, and after they've been proven stable, then they bring them into Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And Fedora has actually been missing some of their release dates lately because they're kind of testing stuff out, and it's taking a little bit longer. But to give you guys an idea, if you just do like a quick Google search for REL timeline, you can start to see the, the release dates on some of this. And uh, I've got it kind of pulled up here on my screen um, where Red Hat 4 came out in 2005 and Red Hat 5 came out in 2007, two years apart, right? And then it got to be three years apart before Red Hat 6 came out. And then four years for Red Hat 7 in 2014. Now we're in 2018 already. And so they're saying that 
Uh, you know, we're not going to see the next one until 2019. So it's going to be five years. Like the window is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the stuff that we're, we're used to seeing is, is changing now. And so normally I would say, yeah, it's six months. Uh, public beta is out there. Within six months, we'll have 7.5. But I just don't know that's going to hold true anymore. All right. Well, in other uh, Linux news, we're, uh, we've got some changes, some new features coming to the Linux 4.16 kernel. Uh, and I know, Don, that you're extremely excited about <laughs> that. Um, so I'll let you tell me what's coming there. I, I, I do see in the article the words Meltdown Inspector, so I'm, I'm yeah, already excited. Yeah. So, um, you know, with the Linux kernel, uh, a lot of people have a preference with Linux distros. You know, I want Ubuntu or I want... Uh, RHEL, or I want CentOS, or Fedora, whatever. Um, at the end of the day, they're all running the Linux kernel. And when the Linux kernel sees an update, some of the distros will pick that up really fast, like Debian testing or Ubuntu. They'll, they'll get those new kernels really fast. Other ones like RHEL will take longer to get them because they want to prove stability and, and security, right? So whenever a new version of the kernel comes out, though, they bake in new features and those trickle out to the operating system. So if you want to see what's coming down the road, even if you have a distro that's not very popular, if you watch the kernel updates, you'll start to see that. So um, the 4.15 kernel, uh, it either is about to release or is already released as of today. Uh, that one was, it got delayed a little bit over the weekend. Uh, so that, that should be out by now, uh, or by the time you guys hear this podcast at least, unless it gets delayed again. But they're already planning for the features they're going to shoot for in 4.16. And these are features that we should see within the next year. Now, there were a couple of features, like, like Peter mentioned, where there's Spectre and Meltdown uh, patches, the KPTI stuff that gets built in uh, to the kernel. So it's, it's protected. And now we don't have to worry about whether our distro releases the update. Because minor distros, they didn't get a nice little note from Intel saying, here's how you fix it and here's the, the data you need. Only the big distros got that. So now it'll be baked into the kernel, which is nice. Uh, there's some other things that are starting to be introduced. The, uh, the, the VirtualBox guest driver is going to be baked into 4.16. So those of you that run Linux inside of VirtualBox, you won't have to install the guest driver anymore. So that'll help out a good bit there. But some of the cooler features, things like uh, AMD's secure encrypted virtualization support, they're going to try and bake that one in, which would be nice uh, for the people that are virtualizing in an AMD environment, which admittedly is not a lot. Uh, but the biggest one that I noticed as I was kind of skimming down the list was BTRFS RAID improvements. Uh, BTRFS, or the better file system, butter file system, depending on who you ask, uh, a lot of people out there love it. Some people hate it. Uh, there's people like me who will tell you right now, don't use BTRFS in production. And there's other people who say, I swear by BTRFS and I use it everywhere, right? The reason I say don't use it in production is that if you use it in a basic form, like you just format a drive with one slice and you drop BTRFS on it and that's it. It runs very stable. It does a fine job. But when you get complex, when you start doing multi-volume uh, deployments, things like a RAID array, there are several data loss scenarios in BTRFS. And on a production system, you can't have data loss. It's not an option. So BTRFS is not production ready. And there's several vendors that are out there that agree. Red Hat dropped support for BTRFS uh, when 7.4 came out. So they're working to improve upon that. And we're going to see that baked into the newest Linux kernel. So we're going to see BTRFS become more production ready. So those of you that are, are fans in that camp, you won't have to try and defend it anymore. It'll be there. So we'll have to see whether or not that actually makes it into 4.16. Uh, it, it very well may, uh, or it could slip. That happens. But it's always a good idea to keep an eye on what's coming down the line. Sounds good. Yeah, and a lot of uh, 
good Linux news coming down the line, it sounds like, uh, between those two stories. So let's shift gears now a little bit to the cloud. And um, there, there weren't any really big announcements this week in terms of cloud computing, but a couple of articles caught our eye that we wanted to talk about, and uh, they kind of went together to help uh, help us imagine some scenarios. So ZDNet had an article that basically said, um, you know, how much an outage could cost you as a um, as a user, as, as a, an economy, basically. Uh, and, and they said, and this is according to their uh, insurance uh, provider, so, uh, so Lloyd's, uh, basically said that uh, if, one of the, um, if one of the top cloud providers went offline in the U.S. for three to six days, it w- would result in losses to the industry of about $15 billion. When, <laughs> you know, when we think about how much data sits in, in these, uh, these clouds, and, and we've talked in the past about you know, the different zones and the different regions and um, you know, how, uh, you know, how different things could go down and, and uh, you know, if, if something could affect the cloud as a whole. But um, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of money because that's a lot of data. So uh, you know, certainly something that, that we need to be planning for basically as, uh, as people with our, our data in the cloud. Yeah, and, and it's not unheard of for them to have outages, right? Amazon has had outages. Uh, Microsoft Azure has out- outages. Um, three to six days. That's I don't think time. any of them yeah. have had an outage that long, so that would be significant. But uh, if, you, if you think about all of the infrastructure and the money that they've dumped into it, there's actually one well-known vulnerability that can bring those things down, uh, and that's the BGP routing tables that the Internet uh, you know, uses IPv4 and IPv6 as the, the main communication protocols, and uh, they use BGP or the Border Gateway Protocol to build the routes across the Internet. Well, BGP is an insanely trusting network or a, a routing protocol that it'll exchange information with other routers with the barest of authentication and, and no real encryption. Like BGP is just too, too trusting. And over the years, there have been several times where the BGP routing tables have gotten polluted. Uh, there was several years ago, um, a ISP in China mistakenly published an incorrect BGP route, and accidentally, some of the traffic from the U.S. Pentagon was routed into China for a little while. Uh, you know, it, it, simple accidents like that, that uh, totally innocent. Uh, sure, yeah. yeah. So it, it's already been weaponized. Uh, it, it can be used uh, very, very easily. Um, it would cause the Internet to fracture if somebody pulled an attack like that. So a lot more would go down than just a cloud provider. But if somebody understood the address space that was occupied by AWS or Azure, they could do a BGP attack, and it wouldn't matter how many generators and power grids you have. None of that would matter. If people can't get routed to your network, then then you're out of luck. Yeah, and it, and the, the article uh, makes a good point that the people that would be affected by this most are actually the small businesses because not only – um, do they not have the cyber insurance that that the Fortune 1000 do? But they're also a lot less likely to have, uh, you know, invested in in more infrastructure to have either on-site backups of that data or um, other providers and things like that. Which kind of brings us to um, the next article in this group here, um, which is from Tech Republic, uh, and it's about why multi-cloud will become the new standard in 2018. And um, you know, f- for me, it basically sounds like to protect yourself against things like this that you've got if you've got your stuff on multiple cloud providers uh, you're you're taking that away um, as, as one of the things that could hurt you uh, this badly yeah and you know big companies used to do this they, some of them still do Apple was uh, very visible in the fact that when they set up their iCloud services 
they had some in AWS and some in Azure, right? They, they actually used Microsoft services for powering iCloud for a while. Uh, Dropbox did the same thing with theirs where they had private servers and they had AWS servers to be able to support all their storage. By doing that, you kind of hedge your bets and you say, I, I'm going to spread across more than one provider. So if one goes out, I still have the other one and I'm up. Small businesses usually don't have the staff or the the technical knowledge to do that. And they'll just deploy in a single provider or worse they'll deploy in a single zone in a single provider. And they'll say, I'm going to put all of my stuff in U.S. East 1A uh, with AWS. And, and that, that may make sense from an easier management perspective. But then when that one zone goes out, they've now lost. And that's far more likely than the entire service. Yeah, zone. I was going to say, we've seen that. We've yep. seen zones go down, again, not for four to six days, as the article talked about. Uh, but, yeah, we, we've definitely seen that as something that could happen. So um, that's literally an example of putting all your eggs mm -hmm. in one basket. And speaking of the baskets, uh, <laughs> the next article uh, does a great job of breaking down um, what services exist out there and, um, and and kind of their market shares. So I think, yep, Don's got that up on his screen. So we can um, take a look at, uh, at some of those. We've got uh, Amazon. Uh, Microsoft, Alibaba, Google, uh, Rackspace, and then my favorite uh, is Others. I, I love using Others. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, it, the, uh, the fact that there are so many Others in this, which is represented by the yellow there, shows that, um, you know, it's, that it is not all in one place. You know, you think about, God, Amazon's so huge, all, the, all of our stuff's there, but if that went down, it's, it's taking down less than half of of uh, everything that exists out there. Yeah, and for our listening viewers, this uh, this little uh, infographic here came from uh, rickandtour.net. Uh, and what they did is they basically just kind of try to illustrate what that market share looks like. Uh, and you can see where others occupies half the landscape. And that's others is a pretty big word. It's a ton <laughs> of different providers. But Amazon controls a massive amount of the market share. So in this little pie chart, Amazon is darn near half the thing. I mean, it, it is a lot of, of uh, uh, infrastructure there. Uh, Microsoft is making headway. We've, we've talked about that. Uh, but the interesting thing with that headway is it's not at the expense of Amazon, as you can see, that Amazon went from 39 to 44 percent. Uh, mm -hmm. It's at the expense of others. So yeah. uh, they're, they're taking out the little guys. But in more cases, they're swallowing up the little guys and absorbing them uh, into their their data centers, I think. Yeah, providers like Alibaba jumping into the space is making a big difference. Uh, and, and regulations like GDPR is making a big difference where people are saying, all right, well, now I need my servers over in this country or with a different company. Um, traditional providers like Rackspace, they're the ones who are having a harder time kind of participating in that market. Uh, and so we're seeing changes there where Rackspace has started saying, hey, yeah, we can do co-located servers, we can do dedicated hardware, we can do private cloud but we can also help manage your AWS and manage your Azure. And they're starting to, to basically go there. So if you're doing multi-cloud deployments, a partner like Rackspace can really, really benefit you because they're not tied to one service. If you call a Microsoft Azure salesperson, they're not going to want you to do multi-cloud. They're going to want you to do, you know, take advantage of all these redundancies we have built into Azure, right? That's what they want. Uh, you go with somebody on the outside like Rackspace and you, you get a different perspective. So multi-cloud is not hard and it's not expensive the main concern with it is security right that if i have my infrastructure deployed in two different environments that's two different environments i have to secure and if i have communications going between those environments i've got to make sure that's secured also so as long as we plan for that the rest of it is is not really any different than managing a single environment and if you use a technology like openstack 
you can actually manage across all of these clouds from one UI, and you basically forget the fact that there's more than one cloud behind them. So definitely uh, something companies should be doing. Yeah, that's pretty cool, because if you look at this chart, I, I'd look at it and say, wow, Rackspace is the only one that's losing market share, but I didn't realize that that's something they were doing. And I mean, are they the only ones on, on this list, at least, that you're aware of that, that provides um, multi-cloud directly? There's a few other companies, um, DigitalOcean. But I mean, not Amazon, oh. Microsoft, oh, oh. Alibaba, Google. Yeah, not. I would say not directly. Some yeah. of them participate in OpenStack uh, a little more friendly than others. Uh, and that is basically like supporting multi-cloud, but you won't see that service offering on their website. It's not like they, they advertise sure. that. Very cool. Well, um, so it sounds like if you haven't done so already, at least look into what that option would be to um, to, to get your data spread off uh, among several cloud providers, uh, if possible, and just uh, uh, insulate yourself a little bit from some of those risks out there. So um, switching gears, another place where you could put all of your data now <laughs> is this, uh, this new micro SD card, which is the largest capacity yet, and it is 512 gigabytes. So I, I, this always makes me think back to um, those images you saw of them unloading, you know, a four meg drive or something out of a plane in the, yeah, in the 60s or 70s. And it was like taking up the whole fuselage. And, and now you've got, uh, you know, a 512 uh, micro SD card, not even an SD card, it's the micro SD card. So um, I don't know, you seem you, know, you seemed happy about this. So and, and what's funny, and I, I snuck this article in today, because uh, I knew You'd be confused why this was important. As a as an iPhone user, uh, you are wearing Apple shackles <laughs> that say when you buy a phone, you get a certain amount of memory, and that's it. And if you want to upgrade, we will gladly sell you a new phone um, because that's uh, you know the walled garden that they've created. But for the rest of us, most of our phones accept SD cards, and you can pop in a micro SD card, a tiny little SD card and add memory to it. This is shocking for Apple users. Um, 128 gig SD cards have become pretty darned affordable. You can get them for usually 50 or $60. 256 gig SD cards, though, those actually run a, a pretty penny. And uh, usually like $300 or, or something. Uh, still cheaper than a new phone. But we knew the 500 gig cards were coming. We just didn't know when. Well, the first company has gone to market. Now, it's uh, Integral Memory is the name of the company. They've released a 512-gig micro SD card. Um, I wouldn't advise going out and buying the very first one from the first company that made it to market because you just don't know exactly how that's going to work out. Uh, but it means that within the next six months, we'll see other vendors jumping in. And when the when the SanDisks and Patriot Memory and those guys, when, when they're now starting to push out, uh, those SD cards, then you'll know that it's stable enough. And it'll take a little while for phones to be able to support that as well because they, they do have to do little driver updates and things to make sure they can recognize the larger space. But it is neat to see on this tiny little card, you can have half a terabyte of storage right there. When you're dealing with tablets, Chromebooks, uh, phones, not iPhones, uh, you know that people are increasingly using those as their regular day-to-day -day computers. And... You need to be able to expand memory and chuck that in there, increase what's in there, and it is, uh, you know, significantly easier than popping in an SSD or something like that. So really need to see half a terabyte in a mobile device. Yeah, you're still on this using the phones as computers things, and yeah, I mean this this iPhone 10 is probably about the same price as that. Uh, how much uh, how much storage do you have in your uh, iPhone? 10? I went for the the 256 because okay. uh, basically, you know, they they told you here's how much it's going to be a month. And then it was like, or, you know, you can get the 256 for like three more dollars a month. 
Was that the highest they offered, or did they have a 500? Yes. No, they, I don't believe they had the five, 512. If they did, I, I need to have a, a little <laughs> talk with uh, with Marcus over there at the, uh, at the Verizon and store. And that is partly how they get you. <laughs> I, I just say how they get you, but part of their business model. that uh, They be, get me with a great phone, well, John, you, you and, could and, and emojis. Uh, and I... I, I will say the the iPhone 10 is is it is a beautiful phone like it is the best looking phone I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, whether you whether you like iOS or hate it, it, it is just a slick looking phone. Um, my Galaxy S8, some people love it. I don't think it's a pretty phone, but functionally I love it. It does everything that I want it to do. So you know it's it's about finding the right thing. But with Apple, because you can't upgrade the memory, because I'm and I'm not talking about RAM. I'm talking about the SD card because you can't upgrade the storage. You have to make that decision on purchasing day. When, when you're buying it, you have to say, all right, well, how much do I want? And that's what I'm going to have until I get rid of this phone. Uh, when you have an SD card slot, it's nice to be able to change that. I will say, though, it's becoming less and less of an issue than it was um, two or three generations of iPhone ago. Because back then, your phone, your phone was your iPod. And it had all your, all your music there. And now most people are using um, a, a streaming service, be it a Spotify or um, Amazon Prime Music or or Apple's Music uh, itself. So um, your your music is coming elsewhere, and that that was taking up a lot of the space. The other thing being photos, of course, and that's now either an iCloud or I, I use Amazon Prime, for example, um, to uh, upload my pictures as I take them. So I'm able to keep my phone pretty clear of music, clear of, of yeah. photos, and, and find that I'm, I'm not, well, I'm not even getting close to the 256 yet, but uh, I was on, on the 64, but you it, know, I, it took some work. I did a little uh, Amazon shopping while you were talking there, and uh, <laughs> on the on the iPhone site, or on the Apple site, um, the difference in price between a 64 gig and a 256 gig is $150, right? If you go on Amazon, a good 256 gig SD card is about $120. That's only a $30 markup. That's actually not that bad. It, it used to be highway robbery, what they would charge. So it looks like they've gotten a little more reasonable on that. It's better gigabytes than better. Apple provides. Uh, yeah, they're Apple gigabytes. Yeah. So, so here's a question <laughs> I had going back to uh, when you were talking about why this is important and, and how maybe we don't jump out right away and, and put these in our, in our phones until we um, kind of see how they work. I've I've had that issue before with with cameras or things where um, I'll buy that that newest biggest card and it just doesn't work. Why why is that? Why can uh, can the camera or the or the phone mm-hmm. not recognize um, the the bigger card? So there's there's a few different reasons for it, but when it comes to like SD cards, there's there's actually multiple chips inside of them that are the the non volatile RAM that this gets written to. And the big limitation on how big they can be is how many of those chips they can fit in that form factor. And if they invent a smaller chip, that makes more room, they can get more in there, and now you can have more space, right? But if they don't invent a smaller chip, then they just have to find better ways to cram it into this small form factor, and typically that generates heat or, or a high fail rate. You know, the, the components are just too cramped and they, they fail too quickly. So it takes them time to get it perfected. And you used to see this with hard drives all the time. Like when one terabyte hard drives first came out, if it was a spinning disk, you could open it up and there'd be like four platters in it, right? But two years later, you could get a one terabyte disk and it would only have one platter inside of it because they got more efficient, they got better. And by just having one spinning platter, the drive would last longer and run more efficiently. So that that happens a lot of times with these new technologies, but also there's a, a rush to be first to market, right? I, I have not heard of integral memory before this company, but they were the first to market with it. Now I've heard of them, mm-hmm. right? So that there's they're, they're being rewarded 
And maybe, and I want to I want to be fair here, maybe Integral Memory has the best research division in the market. And so that's why they were able to come out with this first. Or maybe they cut a bunch of corners and they've put out a faulty product. You just don't know, right? You've got to kind of wait and see, unless that company has a, a track record. I'm certainly not the connoisseur of, of memory, so I could certainly be wrong there. But, uh, but that's usually what we have to wait for. But there are times where the storage crosses a certain threshold, where the storage adapters that are in our phones or computers might only allocate a certain amount of bits to tracking the storage space. And that you know, it's like addressing, right? That when you have a street address for a house, and maybe it's four digits or five digits, right? Well, what if I had a limit that said the address on your house can only be five digits? And then I build 99,999 houses. You're making me think of Y2K, basically. Yeah. It's, it's you know, dates, dates have two years. Yeah. So then when you roll over to that next digit, now I need an extra digit, but my controller doesn't support that, right? Yeah. So the technology might be there to make the larger drive, but then our systems can't recognize it. And you see that with um, uh, my son. My son has a, a Nintendo 2DS, and it takes an SD card, which I thought, wow, that's cool of Nintendo to not do some proprietary memory and just use an SD card. Uh, but it's limited to 32 gigs. And it's because with their official firmware, that's the addressing space they set aside is, is enough to address 32 gigs of storage, which I thought was odd because 16 bits uh, is 64 gigs or so. Uh, so they must have picked an odd number. I, I, I don't know exactly how they ended up at 32 gigs. But, uh, but that's what they did. And unless they do a firmware update uh, and sometimes a hardware update, you might not be able to recognize more. It's just making me think that there's a factory somewhere where they're just literally cramming these in. I'm thinking like guys <laughs> sitting on a suitcase uh, kind of thing. So maybe Integral has the, the heaviest guy that could sit on that, there you uh, go. that press and, and get them to actually seal it up. They only have made one so far, maybe. They, they make two products. They make memory and <laughs> sumo loincloths. Yeah, there you go. That works. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, next story, um, shifting gears again. Uh, you know, this might just seem like a run-of-the-mill story to you, Cisco, uh, to acquire hyper-converged infrastructure startup Skyport Systems. But if you're a fan of the IT Pro TV podcast, then you know that this is probably due to the fact that, that our very own Don Pazette interviewed uh, Art Gilliand, of, uh, uh, the CEO of Skyport Systems, back, uh, I want to say, in September of this year. So uh, we're really uh, happy, uh, happy for them to see that, um, that they were able to get acquired by, by such a great brand. Can you, can you remind us a little bit? Uh, I wasn't in an interview, so uh, you can tell us a little yeah. bit about what, what went on there. So Skyport, uh, we had a great interview with their CEO, and, and uh, they focus on protecting the edge. Right, so the edge of your network, and uh, for example, like let's say let's say you manage the the network for a school board, right? So you probably have a core data center somewhere that has great security and, and protections and everything state of the art, but then you've got to deploy servers and nodes out at your schools, right? Areas where you might not have an IT worker who has their eyeballs on it every single day, where janitors and principals and other people have physical access to where those servers are stored. Or you're deploying in a co-location facility where, again, you're, you're trusting a third-party company to manage your equipment and not mess with it when you're not watching, right? That, that's part of the challenge that we have when we trust uh, or we put our, our hardware somewhere that's untrusted. 
So what Skyport does is they actually have several different technologies they can use to protect your systems that are deployed this way. Uh, so if you go back and watch the interview, we talk about some of those and how they work. But they, uh, their, their main product is a product called SkySecure. And it allows you to basically create a, uh, a hardened chassis for a system so that if it gets tampered with, the data is effectively destroyed. Like if somebody were to try and open the case to do a, a bypass or, or steal a hard drive or whatever, the, the data becomes invalid. They're just not able to get at your information. So really, really handy for people that are deploying in untrusted environments, you get that secured. So uh, they've been working with Cisco for years. Uh, I know they, they had received, uh, I, I think it was... Um, it's about $100 million in funding uh, from various companies. It's $67 million in funding, and it's got Intel Capital, Alphabet Inc., um, GV, and Index Ventures. And Cisco uh, itself backed Skyport through a $30 million round completed in 2016. Ah, that's where I'm so getting my 97 together, from yeah. then. Yeah, $97 million. Um, so, uh, and, and this is all from uh, Silicon Angle, if you want to read more about it at siliconangle.com. Uh, but... Basically, they, they had a great product, and it made sense that somebody was going to acquire them. I, I sort of figured that one of the bigger cloud providers would do it, but it makes sense for Cisco. Cisco has a, a big security offering now, and they're entering that data center space, trying to get away from routers and switches and get into more of this cloud infrastructure. So uh, congratulations to the Skyport team that's out there, and uh, you're welcome for the yeah. amazing media coverage that led to the acquisition. Yeah, I used to watch Colbert all the time, and he talked <laughs> about the Colbert bump, and that's basically, um, this is the first person that's realized the IT Pro TV podcast bump, which apparently is on about a four-month cycle. We, um, we need to start tracking that. Yeah, so there, there you go. So for those of you who we interviewed in December, uh, congratulations uh, ahead of time. Look forward to those announcements and, in March. And for our listeners, if any of you are running a company uh, and you're interested in being acquired by uh, Cisco, you know, drop us a line. We'll do an interview. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to help. That's really all it takes. All right. Now the moment you've all been waiting for, uh, Don gets to tell us about this story, which I'll just give you the headline because literally the headline is all I know in this one uh, because you threw this at me here uh, at the last minute. But uh, the headline is Jeopardy Champ. So uh, I'm talking about the show. Jeopardy Champ hacked accounts of college president and vice president. Uh, and you mentioned this story has just a whole series of antagonists. So I, I'd, I'd love to hear more about this. Topic. All right. It, this article, I, I started reading this article over the weekend and just I, I was laughing out loud. And it, it's it, it's really a tragedy, the whole thing. Um, but it th this is coming out of um, what website was it? Oh, uh, MLive out of a, a Michigan news website. I'm a huge Detroit Red Wings fan. And so I read a lot of news out of Michigan, even though I don't live there. Uh, and I came across this article. So um, basically, there was a, a former Jeopardy champion. Her name is Stephanie Jass. She was like a seven-time winner, and, and she, she won so much money. I think she won more money than any other uh, female contestant on the, the show. Uh, I think, what was the... The guy from uh, can't remember his Salt name Lake, now. Uh, yeah, yeah he, I think he won more. But anyhow, so she's a big Jeopardy champion. Pretty yeah. awesome, right? She goes back to her hometown. She's working for a college. And then all of a sudden, she's uh, you know, arrested for basically uh, hacking, right? Hacked the accounts of college president and vice president. So that sounds pretty bad. And in my mind, just running off the headline, I'm thinking she's obviously smart. Right, a Jeopardy champion and uh, college professor, so an intelligent person. One, why would she hack somebody's account? And and two, how did she do it? Right, let's learn a little more of the details. And then as I started reading the article, 
it all just fell apart. So basically, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you guys the story as I can interpret it. And for the astute listeners out there, you're you're probably not gonna believe me, or you're gonna think I'm leaving details out. But I'm gonna give you everything that, that's out there, right? So um, basically, the college had a power outage, right? And after the power outage, their email that was actually hosted as part of Google's G Suite, right? So they, they, they don't run their own mail servers. They use Google G Suite to host all the email accounts for, the, uh, for the, the college staff. After the power outage, they had to reset everybody's password so they could get into their email. Now, I don't know why that is exactly. I'm not, I've never heard of a power outage requiring <laughs> password resets across the board, but somehow it required them to reset everybody's password. So then they sent out a, a message, I believe it was a text message, to all of the staff saying, we had to reset everybody's password to fix the, the problem from the power outage. Again, makes no sense. Um, and so we reset everybody's password to this, this one password123 or something like that. And you need to log in and change your password as soon as you can. Well, they can't email them this information. They can't email them. So it was like a text or, or some other kind of communication. Yeah. People were out of the office. You know, they, they didn't see it right away. So this Jeopardy champion, she, she said, wow, they made everybody's password the same. So all she did was log into the, the, the college president, the college vice president's account using this password because they just hadn't changed theirs yet. And then she, she dumped their mailbox to have a copy of it. It's not really hacking um, it's gross stupidity on multiple levels. <laughs> well, I've, so, I've got a series of questions. Is that is that it? Um, there, there's a little bit more, okay, but that's enough ahead. for us to run with. Well, well, let me let me first ask you. Um, uh, I see the the issue on the college's side. You know, if if for some reason you had to actually reset everyone's passwords, which I can't get from point A to B of why you would have to do that based on a power outage as well. Um, I would I would assume you'd go with something like your social security number or this personal identifiable information we have about you so that something like this couldn't happen. Is this, have you ever run into a situation like this where, where you've worked, where you've had to uh, generate a password for someone? Sure, yeah. So um, what we have to remember here is that it's at scale, right? Yeah. So it's not one person's password. Maybe it was a thousand people's passwords, sure. right? So um, if... If an actual situation happened, let's say there was a server compromise. I saw unauthorized traffic in the mail server, right? I might immediately cut access to that server. We might restore a backup of the mail server to bring it back online, and then we might reset everyone's password to try and get back to a, a stable environment, right? But when you reset everybody's password, you don't set it to one password for everybody. It just doesn't make sense. You're effectively telling everybody everybody else's password. You can't do that. But at the same time, your suggestion, Peter, I, I would have to, first, I would have to get some kind of yeah. unique information for each person and upload that in a CSV or something to, to automate resetting all of those passwords. That's not really realistic either. So instead, you're supposed to rely on recovery accounts, right? And with G Suite, when you set it up, you give somebody an, an email address, right? But then they all have a backup email address that's put in when they log in the first time. So they could generate a password reset request that would be a unique link sent to them to their backup account to be able to, to fix that. Or a PIN number that's sent to their phone via text message or some other out-of-channel communication that's not tied to that main email account. 
G Suite has that functionality by default turned on this college had that functionality. They probably just didn't know it. They, they didn't have the staff. And you see this when people roll out cloud solutions like this where they say, well, Google manages it for me. To an extent, you still have to learn how to use it. And so it's easy to go in and reset a thousand accounts and set them all to the same password. That's what they did. So that, that's a big mistake. Uh, the quote from the college, though, was really humorous, and I, I've got to find it in here. Um, basically, where they said that uh, um, that none of this would have happened if somebody hadn't inappropriately used the computer system. And I'm, I'm thinking the person was the network administrator. They shouldn't have done the wrong password, but they were they're actually talking <laughs> That's about... That's inappropriate use of the computer yeah, system, I'd say. They were, they were talking about her, and uh, it, it was just comical because they didn't want to... Uh, they didn't want to admit that it was that it was basically their fault. Um, well, while you're looking for that, it makes me think too that uh, in the situation you you uh, you know hypothesized that maybe they saw someone was in this uh, the server and so they decided to shut down that server. Maybe they couldn't find how to shut down that server and said, "Let's just take the whole grid down, and that will take the server down, <laughs> and then then we'll figure that back out." Now we figured out where it is. Now let's bring the grid back up and go ahead and take that server offline. But I, I have to wonder now. Was this a crime of opportunity on her part, or did she cause the power to go down? This the hot take. Maybe she, she is a brilliant person. Who knows what uh, what her yeah. capabilities are? I, I, I did find the quote uh, where the the college representative said uh, uh, that the method they used, uh, right? Because it was a, a, a two step method or whatever, uh, uh, where they they reset the password and you log in and you're required to set a new password. They said um, the method worked just fine had there not been manipulation of the system. In other words, if everybody had just been honest and logged into their account and changed their password, it would have been fine. Uh, but I'm, I'm certain they weren't checking password ages to see like who, who hasn't changed from that default password. There might still be people today that have that default password on there, which is uh, just absolutely crazy. And it's uh, safe to assume that only she got caught, right? Because there's there's got to be... I, I, I think everyone that would get that email would go, Wait, all of our passwords are password one two three four. Yeah, if you read the story, apparently she was um, she was bragging about some information to a colleague that she kind of ratted herself out. Yeah, uh, and that's the only way. Otherwise, I don't think they would have caught her. Yeah. So other people may have done this as well. You know, if a student received an email, a student would have put this. You know, would have put two and two together <laughs> and, and logged in and got access to stuff. And and dumping a mailbox is super easy. Yeah. Any IMAP client does it usually automatically. Um, but another piece of irony was um, a tweet that she put out, uh, which was this one. Uh, she said, uh, oh, it wasn't a tweet. It was a Facebook comment. Uh, in, and this is a, a, a quote straight from her. That moment with IT, or I guess when. All right, so she's not great at grammar, but she's, yeah. she's smart. Uh, that moment when IT publishes a universal passcode for everyone's email, and you freak out for a second until you realize that, one, no one wants to read your stupid emails, and two, you've been forwarding all your work emails to your private Gmail, so there's nothing there anyway, right? That was her, her reaction. So at first, she was kind of outraged that somebody could get into her email, but it's obvious she then took that a step further and said, wait a minute, I... I can get into other people's email, and she went on and did it's it. It's amazing so. how the human mind works. Well, to answer your earlier question, uh, who is Ken Jennings? Oh, Ken, Ken Jennings. Jennings, yep, that's it. He was it. the big uh, yep. Jeopardy winner of, what, 74 games back mm -hmm. in 2004. Well, Miss Jass, we will soon be able to ask you what is 10 to 20, uh, <laughs> you know, with uh, – 
possible chance of parole, uh, you know, she's she's going to be in big trouble. So, uh, you know, lesson of the story there. Don't do it. Not every criminal is brilliant. Not every hacker is brilliant. The newspapers, they are just ready to call anybody a hacker these days. Uh, you know, this this was this was bad IT. And yeah. she certainly, you know, did a crime here. Right. So mm -hmm. she's going to get in trouble. But honestly, I almost don't want to blame her because it's. This is this bad idea. Oh, if I'm her, I'm suing for negligence and entrapment yeah. <laughs> because basically they they put this in front of her and said, "Don't touch it." Well, that's that's hard. That's not fair. Yeah, Poor yeah. lady. Poor lady. So anyhow, if you get bored, uh, we'll post a link to this article. It's it's a fun read. I I laughed out loud on, on multiple paragraphs inside of this thing because it's just a travesty. Like everybody in this article did something wrong, uh, but only one is arrested. So we'll we'll see where that goes. Yeah, and I've had some people ask about posting uh, links to articles that we share. So, I mean, if you're watching this on iTunes or something like that, it's a little harder to put all that oh, in the description. Yeah. But what I can do is uh, we post these on YouTube as well, um, and we have a playlist uh, on YouTube. So we'll go ahead and, and try to put those down in the description on YouTube so you can enjoy what we've been able to enjoy uh, and, and read all those articles. And uh, and that's a lot of fun to do. Yeah, you know, we, we could add 20 minutes to the end of the uh, each episode and read off the URL. HTTP slash www. Yeah, that, that's great. We'll do that. That'll that'll get listenership and viewership <laughs> right up. Yeah, so we could we could put them on the screen for those watching, but for those listening, that'd yeah, be yeah. that'd be a pain in the butt. Well, anyway, thank you all for watching today, and uh, that's pretty much going to wrap it up for us today. I feel good. This, a lot of times, I come out of this scared out of my mind about all the the terrible things <laughs> happening in the world. I mean, there's it's just that that specter and, and uh, meltdown stuff kind of still lurking around, but for the most part, things are getting pretty good. So. Um, if you have not done so yet, please take a moment, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with your friends. And we'd really appreciate it if you can drop us a review on there as well. It really helps us out in moving up the rankings. But uh, I guess next week we'll come back in, in week five. I know we've got some interviews that we're uh, hopefully getting to very soon. Uh, and so some we'll exciting bring ones. those to some exciting mm -hmm. ones, some people that will be acquired by Cisco uh, come <laughs> June, July, I think. So uh, look out for those. But until next time, for Don, I'm Peter, and we'll see you next time.